So you got to blow those cobwebs away. And you got to tell Satan that you mean business. Thanks, Paula and Carla, Lorna. Two weeks ago, we left Paul where? Hey, it was only two weeks, 14 days. <laughs> we left him in prison. Felix had had his opportunity to respond to the good news of Jesus Christ. And today we're going to see other people like Festus and Agrippa and Bernice have their opportunity as well. I want you to see, I want you to understand Paul and Luke, of course, the historian, as the apologist, the defender of the faith, showing that Christianity is a legitimate belief system, and also seeing Paul as a witness. Both roles we will see today. And then I want you to think, by the time we get to the end of this sermon, where you fit in. Can you defend the faith, which everyone who professes the name of Jesus Christ should be able to do? And can you give a legitimate witness for the Lord Jesus Christ and the good news of the gospel? Let's pray. Gracious God, I'm sure Paul's, Paul's mind and Paul's heart must have been severely tested when he was in prison. And yet you and your goodness gave him wonderful opportunities to witness to important political people in that day and age. Ultimately, you will get him to Rome before Nero. And as we look through Acts chapter 25 and 26 this morning. Help us to pick out a few points, Lord, that will show us what you're trying to do through people like Paul and other of your servants and what you want to do through us. Thank you for calling us to the Lord Jesus Christ, for opening our hearts to the good news of Jesus Christ. And Lord, we know that time is short. Christ will soon be here. Let us share Jesus while we have an opportunity. For in his name we pray, amen. Take a Bible, open to Acts chapter 25. We will be going through two chapters this morning. So that's a lot of material. And um, hey, Pastor, you better get your skates on here. Right, okay, I will. Chapter 25 is going to go real quick, and then I'm going to slow down a little bit in chapter 26. As I've said before, there were a number of trials that Paul had to endure. And every time he has been on trial, he has given a good reason for the hope within him. And he has made it very, very clear that he hasn't done anything wrong. And really, even though the accusations have come from the Jews, they've not been able to back them up with real evidence. Today, we will see 
something similar. This sermon is based on a translation of a few verses in Acts 26, almost, almost a Christian. Three days after arriving, the province Festus went up from Caesarea to Jerusalem, where the chief priests and Jewish leaders appeared before him and presented the charges against Paul. Nothing really new there, but now we have Felix has gone off the, off the scene, and now we have a new man, Festus. So maybe the Jews can work on Festus and get some um, cooperation from him. And so they explain the problem they have with Paul. Let's get this guy to Jerusalem. Just give us a chance there, and we'll show you what it's all about. So Festus asked Paul, hey, Paul, what about going to Jerusalem? And let's clear this up once and for all. How do you think Paul's going to respond? Is he going to say, yes? Let's go to Jerusalem. I know that these Jewish people will give me a fair shake here. No. He knows that if he goes anywhere near Jerusalem, he is finished. So in verse 9, Festus says, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem to stand trial before me on these charges? And Paul answered, 25, chapter 25, verse 10, I am now standing before Caesar's court where I ought to be tried. What's wrong with a Roman trial? Right here. I've not done anything wrong to the Jews, as you yourself know very well. I have, uh, if, however, I am guilty of doing anything deserving death, I do not refuse to die. But if the charges brought against me by these Jews are not true, no one has the right to hand me over to them. In fact, I wonder why Paul didn't say, hey, you need to let me go. You can't back up any of these charges. This is just a farce. The right thing to do under Roman law is to let me go. But then he says, I appeal to Caesar. Maybe he felt that was the only valid option he had. So after Festus had conferred, he declared, you have appealed to Caesar, to Caesar you will go. A few days later, King Agrippa and Bernice arrived at Caesarea to pay their respects to Festus. I want to give you a little bit of a historical background here on, the, on Agrippa. The notes that I have, both in my study Bible and in some other sources, explain it this way. Herod Agrippa II was the son of Herod Agrippa I of Acts 12. So if you're thinking, hey, haven't we come across a Herod Agrippa before? Yes, number one in Acts chapter 12. The great-grandson of Herod the Great. Bernice was his sister, and rumors were rife that their relationship was incestuous. And because he had been only 17 years old when his father died, he was considered too young to assume the kingdom of Judea, which therefore reverted to rule by procurator. Instead, he was given a tiny and insignificant northern kingdom within what is now Lebanon, and this was later augmented by territory in Galilee. 
and there's more that we could say about um, about Agrippa. Well, maybe we'll skip the nasty stuff. The reality is this. In the Herods, you have murder after murder after murder. John the Baptist, apostles, a nasty track record. So remember that when we get near the end of chapter 6. Remember the kind of people that God in His mercy and His love and His grace understand the depths of sin in their lives and the offer that God gives of totally wiping the slate clean and being right with God. Kind of keep that at the back of your mind as we work our way through these passages. A few days later, King Agrippa and Bernice arrived at Caesarea, verse 13, to pay their respects to Festus. Since they were spending many days there, Festus discussed Paul's case with the king and said, there's a man here whom Felix left as a prisoner. When I went to Jerusalem, the chief priests and elders of the Jews brought charges against him and asked that he be condemned. So he explains the situation to him in verse 22. Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear this man myself. And he replied, tomorrow you will hear him. There's kind of no, a kind of novelty and entertainment factor here. They're not going to pin any charges that are going to stick on Paul. I'm sure that Felix knew that, Festus knew that, and eventually Agrippa would understand that. But Agrippa, who was very, very knowledgeable in the ways of Judaism, he's intrigued. And I can't help but believe that's the work of the Holy Spirit. God's Holy Spirit moves in ways that you and I would hardly begin to understand. And I think there's nothing more that God would want than Festus, Agrippa, and Bernice to repent of their sin. They were the ones that should be the prisoner, right? They were all up to their neck in sin. The next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp and entered the audience room with the high-ranking officers and the leading men of the city. And at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. Now, what's going through Paul's mind now? Imagine just languishing in a prison environment with chains on you, knowing that you're innocent, but the whole system seems to be stacked against you, your own countrymen wanting to tear you to pieces if they just had the opportunity. At the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man. Do any of you know what Paul looked like? Do we have anywhere in the Bible that it tells us what he was looking like? Was he six foot two with eyes of blue? 
The record that we have, he was short, nothing wrong with that. Balding, nothing wrong with that. With a hooked nose, most Jewish people seem to have uh, an interesting nose. And bandy legs. Bow-legged. Sorry. Bow-legged. And so, plus he's in prison clothes, or he's in his clothes which have been in prison, I suppose, which would, I mean, it's not like they're going to send them out to the laundry or something, and he's in chains. So as far as Paul is concerned, as far as that court is concerned, when you compare it with the pomp, the majesty of Agrippa and Bernice with their, their purple clothes, Festus decked out, they're all in their Sabbath attire, except Paul. Pretty insignificant Paul, and yet one of the greatest Christians that's ever lived, who's going to give a tremendous defense and witness before the court. The whole Jewish community has petitioned me about him in Jerusalem and here in Caesarea, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. Verse 25, I found he had done nothing deserving of death, and because he made his appeal to the emperor, I decided to send him to Rome. But I have nothing definite to write to his majesty about him. That's really not true. But that's the spin that Festus put upon it. He really wanted Agrippa's opinion. Therefore, I brought him before all of you, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that, so that as a result of this investigation, I may have something to write. For I think it's unreasonable to send on a prisoner without specifying the charges against him. The Jews had no problem specifying the charges. We've heard as a congregation what those charges are. He's against the temple, he's against the Jewish religion, and he's, he causes riots. Oh, and by the way, he's trying to dethrone Caesar. They probably wanted to throw that in too. That's pretty serious stuff. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. And so Paul motioned with his hand and began his defense. King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today as I make my defense against all the accusations of the Jews. Why, why is he privileged? Because Agrippa understood Jewish ways of doing things. He understood the Jewish mind. And especially so because you're well acquainted with all the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. I don't know if you can remember, but pretty much every time Paul has tried to give his defense, he's been interrupted. So now he has someone smart, understands the Jewish ways, can see very clearly that the accusations are not going to stand. Just allow Paul to speak. And so he gets his opportunity, almost. Pretty much. The Jews all know the way I've lived ever since I was a child, from the beginning of my life in my own country and also in Jerusalem. And they have known me for a long time and can testify, if they are willing, that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived as a Pharisee. And now it is because of my hope in what God has promised our fathers that I am on trial today. See what Paul is doing? He is saying, hey, my whole, the whole tenor of my life is in harmony with the Old Testament, with the Word of God, with these promises that pointed forward to the Messiah. 
This is the promise, verse 7, our 12 tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night, O king. It is because of this hope that the Jews are accusing me. Why should any of you consider incredible that God raises the dead? Now, there are not a lot of texts in the Old Testament on God raising the dead. So that's your homework. Go home and check it out and see if I'm correct on that. There's a very clear one in the book of Daniel, but remember Daniel came pretty late uh, towards the end of the Old Testament era. I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth and that it was just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the saints in prison and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished, and I tried to force them to blaspheme. In my obsession against them, I even went to foreign cities to persecute them. Not a very good track record, don't you think? See, it doesn't matter how religious you are, if you're going to be a persecuting religious bigot, as Paul was, then you'd better make sure that you repent of those sins, which he did, and that those sins are cleansed from your record, which they were, let's hope the same can happen with Agrippa. On one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests, and about noon, O king, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Now, there are three of these stories in the book of Acts, and we're coming to the last one. And everyone, so let's call them A, B, and C. So C may have details that A doesn't, right? So we don't want to think of the biblical writers as robots and automatons, they were very selective on, on what they included. But the very fact that you have three accounts of Paul's conversion and his commissioning is very significant. Why three accounts? Because this is something really, really important. Not because it tells us about the conversion of one man, but because this is his commissioning to go to the Gentile world, the non-Jewish world, the mass of the population on planet Earth, and tell them the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. Did you notice in these verses where Jesus says, it's hard for you to kick against, this translation says, goads, other translations, to kick against the pricks. Paul's conscience, and I've spoken about this on other occasions, so we won't dwell on this, Paul's conscience must have been working overtime. There's no way that in your heart of hearts you can feel that it's right to torture people, to persecute people, to imprison them, to, to maybe whip them so bad that they blaspheme the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and that ultimately 
um, they are sentenced to death. Think of the families that were been broken up because of that. You wonder why it was hard for the Christian community to embrace Paul? He had a pretty bad track record in many respects. But hey, it's no different for you and me, right? I see one head nodding. You goody two-shoes out there. Don't you have a bad track record? How many sins does it take to be separated from God for eternity? So we're all guilty. We all fall short and continue to fall short of the glory of God. We all need repentance. We all need forgiveness. We all need justification and sanctification and glorification. We are all in Paul's situation until we turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. And the amazing thing here is his Jesus speaking to Paul on the Damascus Road, and he doesn't lump a whole bunch of judgment statements on him. This is a murderer. This is a religious bigot. This is a real nasty person. But he says in another place that he did a lot of it in ignorance. But from a human point of view, we would find it really hard to forgive Paul if it was your son and your daughter and your spouse that was destroyed by him, right? Does it show us something of the heart of God? That Jesus doesn't come with condemnation on the Damascus Road. He knows better than you, than you and I know exactly what Paul did. What he, he knew all the all the nasty, covetous thoughts in his mind and in his heart, as well as his terrible actions. God knew all of that. He knows us through and through. That's why we need to stop playing games with God. Admit, take our sin out, expose it. Tell God that we're ashamed of it and we don't want anything more to do with it. And give it to him because he's the only one that can deal with sin ultimately. And of course here, Jesus says, you're really persecuting me. You didn't believe that I died for you on the cross. You didn't believe that I rose from the dead. But it's me. When you hurt the church believers, the Christians, they are the apple of my eye, then you're persecuting me. Who are you, Lord? I'm Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you. Now Paul is conflating, he's pulling together different accounts like Ananias isn't mentioned in, in this, uh, what I call C account, in this third account. Ananias is not mentioned, so he's pulling some of these accounts together. And Agrippa doesn't need to know about Ananias. It's not important. Get up and stand on your feet. I've appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you've seen of me and what I will show you. I will rescue you from your own people, that's the Jewish people, and from the Gentiles. I'm sending you to them to open their eyes, to turn them from darkness to light. Here's the gospel right here. doesn't mention the word gospel, but this is what it is. That's what the gospel does. 
takes people from darkness into the light, from death to life. Is that your understanding of it? Do you believe it has the power to do that? Turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. And when we turn to the Lord Jesus Christ and we respond to the good news of Jesus Christ, we believe, we have faith and we trust, then forgiveness kicks in. Justification kicks in. God makes us right with himself. We should emphasize the reconciliation, the justification before we even mention forgiveness. We want people to be convicted of their sin. Conviction of sin can be a very healthy thing if it can lead you to eternal life. And we need to make it very clear to people that they can do nothing to atone for their own sins. Jesus has done all of that on the cross. Paul is going to explain the significance, maybe briefly, but he's going to explain the life and the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ so that people like Agrippa can be saved. That's what we should do when we share good news about Jesus Christ. How many people living around here know about the birth of Jesus, know about the life of Jesus, that he never sinned? How many of them know that they're sinners heading for hell? And, of course, very few understand about the grace of God and the forgiveness of God and the justification of God. While we were enemies, while we are sinners, while we are ungodly, God makes us right with himself. Forgiveness kicks in. Holy Spirit is placed into the person's life. We're in the Lord Jesus Christ. His life, death, resurrection, ascension is ours. So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven. Was Paul forced to follow the way of Jesus? No. We do respond negatively or positively. And he obviously responded in an obedient way. First to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem and in all Judea and the Gentiles also. I preached that they should repent and turn to God and prove their repentance by their deeds. That's an interesting way of wording it. Repent, most of you know what that is, sorry for sin, sorrow for sin, or turning away from sin. So if somebody says, I'm following Jesus Christ and he's still going to the strip club, you can't say you're not following Jesus because you're going to the strip club, but you can turn it the other way around, says if you're following Jesus, stop going to the strip club. Stop stealing. Stop committing adultery. You have the power, you're in Christ. You don't have to do those things anymore. You're being sanctified in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you prove that, whatever. For me, it was taking back some stolen books. That was a way of doing it. I didn't know at the time, but that's what the Spirit of God told me to do. We read in the book of Acts earlier about burning the magic books. That's an evidence of repentance. If those books are valuable, why would you want to burn them? No, you don't want them because you believe in Jesus. Well, sell them on eBay. Craigslist. 
You didn't know they had those in the first century? Is that the thing to do? No, burn them. It's not going to help anyone. It's the kind of literature that doesn't help anyone. Then that is why the Jews seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me, verse 22, but I have had God's help to this very day, and so I stand here and I testify. It's like Martin Luther before, before the Roman Catholics. I stand here and testify to small and great alike. I say nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen, that the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One would suffer. Right? Fits right in with our study guide this morning. Isaiah 53, he was despised and rejected of men, a man of suffering, and we esteemed him not. Of course, the greatest suffering is Gethsemane and the cross. But most Jews didn't understand that the Messiah would suffer. Yes, it's there in the Old Testament, and not just in Isaiah 53. But we all pick and choose with the Bible, don't we? And we focus on some things and we neglect other things. We all have an emphasis, and so they really missed this picture of the Messiah as the suffering Messiah. And as the first to rise from the dead, there's the resurrection again, very important, and would proclaim light to his own people and to the Gentiles. So you're telling me as a Jewish person or as a Roman person that I should believe in a criminal who died on a cross? Yes, exactly that. He was, he was no criminal. And God put his stamp of approval upon him by raising this man from the dead. The resurrection is the cornerstone of Christianity. Show that is wrong. Show that is impossible. Christianity crumbles right there. That's the importance of the resurrection. And would proclaim light to his own people and to the Gentiles. At this point, Festus interrupt. Oh no, Paul's being interrupted again. He's on a roll. You don't interrupt the preacher when he's on a roll. But Festus did. Paul, your learning has made you mad. Have you ever been called a nut? A crackpot? Because you believe and testify about these things? And perhaps from a human perspective, it does come across that way to many people still. We're asked to believe in this God-man who was God and man at the same time. Anybody understand that? That his life, and especially his death on the cross, could reconcile the whole sinful race back to God. Anybody understand that? I don't. Never have, and probably never will, even in eternity. Because God's ways are not man's ways. There are deep mysteries here. And yet, can we believe these things? Yes. We can believe, but not fully understand. That seems to me pretty healthy, actually. Kind of keeps man in his place, and he doesn't get too big for his own good. Paul, your great learning is driving you insane. I am not insane, most excellent Festus. 
What I am saying is true and reasonable. The king is familiar with these things, and I can speak freely to him. I am convinced that none of this has escaped his notice because it is not done in a corner. These are historical events. The Christian faith is historically grounded. You cannot say that about any other faith belief system out there. So it's very important that we believe in these historical events. They're not just myths. They're not just spiritual lessons, even though we draw spiritual lessons out of them. There really was a Jesus. There really was an Adam who led the whole human race into sin. Uh, but there is another Adam who has redeemed the whole human race and led them to righteousness. That is discussed in Romans 5. If you don't believe in these historical persons, to me it seems the whole argument collapses. King Agrippa, from the general to the specific. Paul, as a witness, is going for the heart and the soul of Agrippa. King Agrippa, verse 27, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do. Isn't that an interesting statement? This murderous, political, nasty Herod really believes. Now, there's different beliefs. Hey, pastor, what's this belief? The devil believes, right? And he even trembles, which is more than most humans do, but he's not saved. So I, I interpret this to, to mean you really know in your heart of hearts that these scriptural truths are so. These historical events really took place. Then Agrippa said to Paul, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? Almost a Christian. Isn't there something really tragic about that? Almost. And imagine the mercy and the love of God. That Paul, one of the reasons that Paul was a prisoner was to have this opportunity of witnessing specifically to this man who loved the things of Judaism. Jesus was a Jew. Salvation is of the Jews. This man is so close. And yet, so far, if he doesn't surrender the will at this point to God. Acts of the Apostles, page 438. Deeply affected, Agrippa for the moment lost sight of his surroundings and the dignity of his position. Conscious only of the truths which he had heard, seeing only the humble prisoner standing before him as God's ambassador, he answered involuntarily, Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. 
Earnestly the apostle made answer, I would to God that not only thou, but also all that hear me this day, almost all of you would be as I am, a Christian, except these chains. Festus, Agrippa, Bernice, might injustice have worn the fetters that bound the apostle. All were guilty of grievous crimes. These offenders had that day heard the offer of salvation through the name of Christ. One at least had been almost persuaded to accept the grace and pardon offered. But Agrippa put aside the preferred mercy, refusing to accept the cross of a crucified Redeemer. The passage concludes by saying the king rose and with him the governor and Bernice and those sitting with them. They left the room and while talking with one another they said this man is not doing anything that deserves death or imprisonment. Agrippa said to Festus this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. So yes, I suppose in a sense, Agrippa and Festus had the last word, but ultimately it's God that has the last word, because there is a day of judgment for all of us, when we'll all appear before the tribunal of God, and it will matter nothing what you have done or you have not done, but whether you know the Lord Jesus Christ or not. Somehow, someway, Agrippa came so close. But the position, the power, the wealth, everything that was wrapped up in who he was counted for more than the surrendering of the will to the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's make sure, folks, that every one of us identifies in our hearts with the prisoner in the dock, Paul, and make sure that we're willing to suffer for the Lord Jesus Christ, if so called to do that, than to go the way of the world. It's a tremendous temptation for Seventh-day Adventists. Satan is attacking us as a church family and offering the wealth and the pomp and the things of this world. Paul has made it very clear on another occasion, you can't have the world and have Christ. It's one or the other. So let's all examine ourselves in our hearts and make sure that Christ reigns supreme. Make sure that our sins are forgiven. We should know that our sins are forgiven. We should know that our lives are right with the Lord Jesus Christ, not because of any goodness in us. Some of you are wonderful Christians, but your wonderful Christianity doesn't cut it as far as salvation is concerned. Only the perfect life of Jesus Christ is enough for God. Believe and trust in Him and you're in. And if you're in, He'll justify you, of course. He'll sanctify you and He will glorify you. God has a plan and a purpose for your life just as He had for Paul's life. Paul says, I know whom I have, who I believe in. And when you're dwelling in a prison for two years, you had better know whose side you're on and who's on your side.
Let's pray. Gracious God, wonderful, merciful, compassionate God, who met Paul on the Damascus Road, and though he was up to his neck in sin, freely forgave him, clothed him in the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you, Lord, once again for the amazing things you did through this man. You deserve all the honor and the glory. But Lord, we also see those who didn't make it, the Agrippas, the Festus, the Felix, the Bernice, people who loved sin and the world more than the ways of Jesus. So Lord, let's make sure here this morning that each one of us is right with you. Give us this repentance, this conviction that our lives are right with you. And if they're not, Lord, then truly stir us up, shake us up, whatever it takes, so we open the door and Christ comes in fully. Lord, we long for the day, we long for the judgment day, because we know that judgment has been given in favor of the saints. And we know, Lord, that we have nothing to fear in the judgment if we're covered with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Bless this, this church family, Lord, Pray for the Anderson Church that it will go from strength to strength. In Jesus' name we thank you. Amen.